On April 25, 2015, an earthquake struck Nepal, causing extensive damage and taking the lives of thousands. One year later, on April 25, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a panel where speakers shared their research and discussed how relief and recovery have progressed in the years since the disaster occurred. Panelists included Erica Kelly, MPP student at the Harvard Kennedy School, Yoko Okura, MPP student at the Harvard Kennedy School, Ashley Thompson, MDES student at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and Oscar Navidad, MDES student at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Closing remarks were delivered by Mohan Das Manandar, chairperson of the Nepal Energy Foundation. The conversation was moderated by Arnold Howitt, faculty co-director of the Program on Crisis Leadership and executive director of the Ash Center. The event was co-sponsored by the Program on Crisis Leadership and the Harvard South Asia Institute. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Um, I want to welcome you to our panel on uh, the earthquake in Nepal. Um, my name is Arne Howitt and I'm executive director of the Ash Center and also um, faculty co-director of the Program on Crisis Leadership. Um, the Ash Center and the Program on Crisis Leadership are two of the sponsors of this event, but we're also um, happy to have uh, the Harvard South Asia Institute as another sponsor of the event. Um, I want to uh, give a couple of thank yous before we get started. Uh, first of all, to Maisie O'Brien, who was a minute ago behind. Here is Maisie, who's the communications coordinator for the center. Uh, to David Giles, the associate director of the Program on Crisis Leadership, and to Melissa Danello, um, the events manager here at the Ash Center, all three of whom have had, um, in many respects, a bigger role in doing this than any of us have until right now. Um, we have five panelists whom I'll introduce in a couple of minutes. Um, before we get started, I think it might be appropriate for us to take a minute uh, to remember uh, the almost 9,000 people who perished in this earthquake. Uh, so let me ask us uh, for a moment of silence in memory of those people who perished in the earthquake um, and the many millions of people who were in some fashion either directly or indirectly affected. Thank you very much. Many of you know uh, a good deal about this earthquake, but for those who don't, let, many of you are familiar um, with the, uh, both Nepal and th this earthquake, but for the benefit of those who are not, let me just give you a tiny bit of background about uh, both the geography and the event. Uh, Nepal is a pretty small country, and it's sandwiched entirely uh, between China to the north and India to the south. Um, it's near uh, Bhutan and Bangladesh as well, but only India and China touch its territory. Um, as you can see from the uh, map on the right, uh, Kathmandu, the capital and the biggest city in the country, is centrally located, um, and several other major cities in the vicinity. Uh, Mount Everest is just to the northeast of that. Um, and the uh, map on the bottom shows uh, where the earthquake was centered uh, northwest of Kathmandu, about uh, roughly 75 miles northwest on the 25th of 
April uh, 2015. Um, and then uh, about uh, two weeks later, uh, there was another serious earthquake uh, that occurred much closer to Mount Everest on the 12th of May. The um, earthquake caused immense damage in the Kathmandu Valley, uh, which is the center of population for the country and in many of the areas nearby. It also triggered an avalanche on Everest, which killed 21 people, uh, making it the worst day for fatalities uh, in Mount Everest's history. The overall death toll from this earthquake uh, came very close to 9,000 people. Uh, it injured more than 21,000 people, and this in a country of about 28 million. So if we transferred that to the United States, this would be a disaster that was the equivalent of killing 95,000 people in uh, the U.S., um, many, many times more than the 3,000 people who perished in the uh, um, World Trade Center collapse and the uh, 1,500 or 1,900 or so people who perished in Hurricane Katrina. Um, these totals could have been a lot worse if the earthquake had not occurred at just about noontime on a Saturday. Um, it could have been worse because people might not have been able to run out of their homes as quickly uh, if it had happened during the night. And if it had been on a weekday, um, there would have been uh, hundreds of thousands of children, millions of children in school, um, and about 7,000 schools in, in Nepal collapsed in this earthquake. Uh, so the death toll could have been uh, even more horrendous than it was uh, in that uh, had it been on a weekday during school hours. Uh, there were also many aftershocks in the days and weeks that followed uh, leading up to a very quite major earthquake on May 12th, about more than two weeks later, uh, so that people were very frightened during the immediate aftermath of the earthquake and the early responders had to c cope with, with that. Uh, the total economic damage of this event uh, was about $5 billion in U.S. currency, uh, which is roughly equivalent to 25% of annual GDP in Nepal, so a huge financial hit. Today, as you know, is one year after the uh, earthquake occurred, exactly one year to the day, and reconstruction in Nepal for a variety of reasons, not least uh, political turmoil, the new constitution, um, the weak ability of the Nepali government. Um, all of this has meant that the more than $4 billion which the international community has uh, contributed to uh, redevelopment in the wake of the earthquake, most of that reconstruction money has not yet been spent. Um, and uh, the result is, as the Red Cross announced in the last day or two, that there are still four million people living in interim housing uh, that is poor quality, uh, much below the standards that would be appropriate for housing, especially families with children. So the threat to the well-being and safety of people in Nepal uh, remains, and recovery is going to be a very long-term proposition. We have an excellent panel today to comment on this. Um, includes four students who um, have been doing research and made trips to Nepal. Let me briefly introduce each of them. Uh, Erica Kelly is about to uh, receive her MPP degree from HKS. Uh, last summer she had an internship in Myanmar and then in January uh, she worked um, 
in Nepal for a couple of weeks on her PAE work, which she'll talk about. Um, prior to coming to uh, HKS, uh, Erica had worked in finance and strategy consulting, and um, she grew up abroad. She has lived or worked in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Lesotho, Kenya, Uganda, and Cambodia. Um, Yoko Okura, sitting just to my right, is uh, finishing her first year in the MPP program as a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, before she came to HKS, she spent four years as a uh, reporter and producer uh, for TV Asahi in her native Japan, uh, one of the major television stations. Um, and she extensively and intensively uh, interviewed people about over those that period uh, about the uh, impacts of the uh, triple catastrophe, the earthquake, um, tsunami, and nuclear accident that hit Japan on March 11, 2011. Um, and her interviews ranged from uh, uh, ordinary people living in um, communities that were hit uh, by the tsunami or the nuclear accident up to the prime minister of the company of the country. Um, in January, Yoko uh, interned with Daiitwa, which is a local NGO in, um, in Kathmandu that was founded by an HKS graduate. Um, and its mission is to build a movement of young leaders uh, through leadership and entrepreneurship programs in Nepal. Um, Ashley Thompson, um, who uh, is a master's candidate in design studies, finishing her first uh, year in the Risk and Resilience program and at the GSD, um, and heroically has just come from a final exam to participate in this, uh, in this uh, program. Uh, Ashley's research focuses on the dynamics of power, politics, and gender in contested environments, both caused by civil conflict and by disaster. Um, she's conducted field work in a number of countries, including Thailand and Syria, as well as uh, Nepal, uh, and um, prior to attending Harvard, she was in the United States Air Force as a civil engineer officer uh, and an alternate sexual assault response coordinator in Japan. Um, Oscar Natividad, sitting to the left, uh, received his bachelor's and master's degrees in architecture and urban studies in his native Spain. Um, and he is just finishing a two-year program at the GSD in Risk and Resilience. Um, he's the co-founder of a nonprofit in, I guess, in Spain. In Germany. Germany. <laughs> and uh, he's worked on public policy, social housing, uh, and community engagement in Chile, S South Africa, and Haiti, and I guess Germany. Um, both Ashley and Oscar participated in a group of um, GSD students who went to Nepal in January, uh, hosted by World Vision's Nepal Project. And they'll tell you more about that as well. And sitting to my left is um, a gentleman who's become a great friend and of both personally and to the Kennedy School and MIT, uh, Mohan Das Manandar. Um, I'm not quite sure how to describe Mohan because he's a civic activist. He's worked with government. He's an entrepreneur and businessman. Uh, he's an entrepreneur not only in the business world, but also in he's a, a serial offender in founding NGOs in Nepal. Um, he's worked as a senior policy advisor at ISET Nepal, uh, working on government reform issues. Uh, 
We got to know him last year when he was a visiting scholar at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Um, and his focus is on um, issues of inclusive development, particularly with concern for um, minorities, uh, poor people, uh, and people who are of lower caste in the Hindu system that uh, shapes Nepal's uh, public policy um, and working to give them better opportunities in a variety of ways, including in disasters. Um, I won't read the large number of um, uh, things that Mohan has been involved in, um, but I'll mention one that um, he's been executive director of a community foundation that focuses on public policy, uh, the Needy Foundation, which he helped to found. Um, he was CEO of a consulting organization called Organization Development Center that worked with interna excuse me, international organizations doing business in Nepal and also in the South Asia uh, region. Uh, he's been a faculty member and was interim dean at Kathmandu University. Um, the list goes on and on. He's written books about uh, social inclusion uh, and has been very concerned about um, Nepal's uh, ability to respond to disasters and is working very hard with people in the government to improve that capacity. So without further ado, I'd like to um, uh, turn to our panelists. I want to note that Yoko, uh, because of spring exercise here at the Kennedy School, will heroically speak before she has to run off and participate in spring exercise activities at about two, right? But first on the list is um, Erica Kelly. Okay, great. It sounds like it's on. Um, so thanks for coming to listen today. We've been asked to describe a little bit of what our research was and then spend uh, some time talking about some of the key takeaways from that. And take no more than 10 minutes. And take no it. more than, I won't, I definitely won't do that. You, you're welcome to cut me off if I happen to ramble that long. I don't expect to. Um, so as, as uh, Dr. Howitt said, I'm a second year Master of Public Policy student here and our equivalent of a thesis, um, I, I decided to focus on the the initial uh, rescue and relief uh, portion of disaster management in Nepal. And I had the opportunity to work with the Asia Foundation in Nepal um, and work very closely with Mohan, as well as um, Dr. Howitt as my advisor, and owe them a, a, a lot of thanks for that and look forward to hearing what, what they have to say as well. Um, so in, in the work that I did, I, I specifically whittled down into looking specifically at the, the weaknesses in coordination between domestic military, so the Nepal Army, and then uh, domestic civil agencies as well, and um, wanted to understand what factors had either allowed for that effective coordination or inhibited it and then take lessons from that uh, for future disasters. Um, I used the 2015 earthquake as, as my main case study for that and uh, was able to spend uh, two weeks in Nepal doing 30 plus stakeholder interviews across military, uh, civil agencies, and then uh, a gamut of NGOs and international organizations as well to try to get as much as you can in two weeks um, a viewpoint from a number of different perspectives. So. I, 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 there's a lot of things I could go over from my thesis. I promise not to walk you through everything that's in there. I, I wanted to instead focus on just a couple nuances that came out in those conversations that 
um, I, I found particularly interesting. And then I look forward to discussing um, whatever you want to in the, the Q&A time as well. Um, the, the first piece um, had to do with how the, the stakeholders that we interviewed responded to questions about um, the military's role in, in the future of Nepal. I think what, what I found interesting and sometimes surprising, when we met with, with military stakeholders, I mean, they, uh, as, as you would expect, came very prepared with what their role had been, what they thought the weaknesses were, what they thought the future should look like for military's role in disaster response in Nepal. When we instead met with high-level leaders from uh, civil agencies, so from the Ministry of Home Affairs, the, the um, National Planning Commission, they basically indicated that that was an off-limits topic. They didn't want to talk about the role of the military, despite the fact that the military has historically played a very big role in disaster response, did in the 2015 earthquake, and is expected to in the future as well. And I think that the takeaway from that was just if that conversation isn't happening at the highest levels, and I'm, I'm sure it is in, in non-interview type settings, but I think that the, the fact that it's not openly discussed is to the, the detriment of coordination efforts. You can't, if you, if you don't have the conversation about the role openly, it's, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to coordinate in disaster settings when there's a lot more stress around that situation. So that was the, the first um, nuance that came from those. The second one has to do with, um, the, the simulation, the practicing of what you're going to do in those very early hours directly after a disaster. Um, simulations, uh, we found simulations are happening, maybe not at the scale or in the regularity that you would want them to in Nepal, but the, the simulations are being led by the military. It's being driven by the military with support from international militaries. And when the, the coordinating body that is tasked with being the heartbeat, the network, the, the, the hands that connect all of the different disaster response um, bodies, when that sits within civil government, but they're not the ones leading the simulation exercises that help determine how you're going to perform once a disaster strikes, inevitably, whoever led the simulation is who steps up and leads in that early hours after a disaster strikes. And I, I think we saw that in the 2015 earthquakes where the military was who stepped into that leadership role, especially early on. And I think, again, the, the lesson there is that, that simulation, that practice, needs, needs to look like what you want it to look like post-disaster. And, and if that's going to happen, then that national coordinating body would need to be much more in a, in a leadership role than they are currently. Um, and then the last piece is, is more of a, it, it, I kind of didn't hear it in the first couple interviews because it seemed so obvious to me and then I kept hearing it over and over in all of the, the conversations that we were having. And it, it had to do with the, the personal relationships and professional relationships between the leaders on this side of the fence in the military and the leaders on this side of the fence in the civil agencies. And the military historically in Nepal has been a very separate entity for, for a lot of different reasons, both about what families go into the military, et cetera. And I, I think what that has done is it means that this person doesn't ha, has never spoken to this person, and so in a in a national disaster, how how I mean they, they don't have any sort of pre-existing relationship, and I think there was a lot of emphasis put on needing to to build those informal um, and formal relationships between the leaders, so that when something happens, they know the number to pick up, they know the name, they they are able to 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 make those connections quickly, and I think. Um, while that, that seems almost like a fluffy thing, it, it, it was something that came up quite a bit. So I will, I will end there, given that uh, we want to make sure we, we stay true to time, but look forward to taking your questions at the end. Thank you very much. Um, next speaker is Yoko Okura.
Hi, um, thank you all for coming out today. Um, so I think Erica's focus was more on the relief, and I think um, the three students we're gonna talk um, now will focus more on the recovery process. So um, I went to Nepal in January for three weeks to intern with a local NGO, as Arndt mentioned, um, Daitwo, which was started by an HKS graduate and former senior fellow at the Hauser Institute at the Kennedy School. And um, more broadly, my interests lie in natural disaster recovery, especially focusing on how to promote community resilience after a disaster through my experience of reporting in the 2011 earthquake in Japan and also um, other various disasters in the country and also in the Philippines. And I think that um, although the countries are very different, one mutual thing is that after a disaster, there is momentum for various actors to actually to take part in strengthening resilience, to um, invest in things that might might or might not happen. So I think especially in the context of a developing country which has maybe more immediate interests, ec economic interests, social interests, facing them every day, it's very hard to persuade people to invest in something that may or may not happen. But once a disaster, especially at such a large scale as the one that ha the Gorka earthquake, there is a movement among people and also momentum building up both politically to do something about it so that the same thing does not happen again. And I think the one unfortunate thing about the Nepal earthquake was the political momentum was not maximized, especially because of the haggling going between different parties and the new constitution that was being put in place so that it was only until basically over maybe eight months or nine months after that a finally a government agency was put in place that could actually start using the budget because the Nepal had received a tremendous amount of international aid, but because the government couldn't agree to set up an agency, couldn't appoint a chair, that this money wasn't being distributed as quickly and as effectively as would um, the people needed, basically. So I went, um, the reason for my uh, internship basically in January was because I'm going back this summer to work with UNICEF Nepal in the emergency division on disaster resilience building in the recovery process. So I wanted to first go in January to understand better what the needs of the communities are, especially in the local areas outside of Kathmandu, although Kathmandu was affected very severely as well. And um, one thing I found was that there were because of the lack of trust in the government, I think both historically and especially with what was happening, there were a lot of non-governmental organizations going into these areas and helping the people build houses, build schools, which I think is a very important role and I think what a lot of the population um, was happy to have, except that not a lot of the organizations were held accountable for what they were doing. For example, you had organizations coming in and building schools, but without really understanding what the building codes should be so that the buildings don't collapse. But it was very hard for the local population to keep these people accountable when the choice was you may not get a school for another year or two versus yes, it might be a little dangerous, but at least we have something and we can send our children to school. So I think that um, going in with, so the organization I worked for also was 
not originally an organization that worked in disaster recovery per se, but because of a lot of funding that was made available to the, or especially the nonprofits and NGOs, working in disaster recovery also kind of became an incentive for organizations that don't initially work in this area to start programs because they can receive funding from international organizations, um, governments, such including the US and Japan. And they had very um, generous funding for organizations who would work in disaster recovery. So that organizations who don't necessarily have the expertise in the area started going into these areas so that they can acquire budget. And also, of course, they wanted to do good in the recovery process. But it was, um, so you have, I went to many rural communities in the Ramanchap district. So it took maybe four hours or five hours to go into these um, communities in the mountains where there was not really information about what was going on in the recovery process. People didn't know when the money would be given, what was promised. So I think the government initially promised $150 for, for family. A lot of the people hadn't gotten it, but they didn't know if they would ever get it. So the, people were basically having to make decisions and trading off a lot of times their safety for because they just did not know what was promised would actually happen. And then the people who they looked to were non-NGOs that were promising them to build schools. So um, one thing that I did with the organization was to make sure that at least for the organization we coordinated with village district, um, basically leaders of the village district government officials, so that they communicated to national government agencies the architecture plans, the plans of the schools that they were building, so that they could at least have some check on if the materials they were using, the building architecture they were using were minimal level of safety at least. But there is no systematic way to do this. And the only reason our organization did this was because we realized it was a problem and not a good investment for the school and the children. So um, I actually came back a little bit um, disheartened in the scale of the problem when it's so big and it's easy to have each organization be accountable to what they're doing, but especially when you don't have a government that can kind of sometimes limit or enforce laws, policies to coordinate something such as building codes that we, I think we take for granted in a lot of countries it was very, very difficult. And I think that is one of the questions I'm trying to answer as I go back in the summer um, to intern in Nepal. Yoko referred to some of the uh, difficulties in Nepal, and let me just take a moment to set the scene on the governmental side. Um, as many of you know, uh, Nepal had a monarchy for centuries, and um, in uh, the late 20th century, in the 1990s, um, there was a good deal of turmoil. Uh, there was a Maoist rebellion, um, and for 10 years there was a civil war in uh, Nepal that was finally settled in 2006 and uh, with an agreement that there would be elections held which were held and the Maoist party won a majority of the seats in the uh, uh, legislative body um, in 2008 as that legislative body was getting organized and uh, underway um, there was a decision made to declare 
Nepal a republic, and the king was deposed, uh, a republic was formed, and a decision was made to, even earlier than that, to write a new constitution. But the two big political parties in Nepal, the Nepali Congress Party on one side and the Maoist Party on the other, uh, could not agree on quite a few features of that constitution, and so the government proceeded, but there was no constitutional basis for it. Um, one of the biggest issues was a question of federalism. How many, the, Nepal had never had provinces before, and the question was how many provinces, where would the lines be drawn, and what would the subnational um, <coughs> structure of government look like? Nepal has not had local elections since 1997, uh, and localities, there are 75 districts uh, that are administered by civil servants appointed by the central government who don't necessarily come from that central government, and then a village organization below that, but very poorly staffed with civil servants or perhaps no civil servants in some of those, in some of those villages. Um, the earthquake occurred in April, just about the time that the constitutional negotiations were about to bear fruit um, and, and in some ways precipitated the decision to um, finalize the constitution. <coughs> that happened in late August and early September. Um, just before that, uh, the legislative body under the Nepali Congress Party had passed legislation that created a reconstruction agency. Uh, it appointed a head of the reconstruction agency, um, but shortly afterwards, control of the government passed to the Maoist party uh, in a pre-planned transition. Um, and as a result of that, the legislation was never finalized. The person who was chosen as the head of the reconstruction agency never took office. Um, and it was several months more before a new reconstruction agency, looking mostly like the one that had uh, been created before, but now headed by someone from the Maoist political party, uh, finally took uh, office. And they've been very slow to get going, as uh, Yoko mentioned. and. Um, the, uh, as a result, most of the money that has been contributed internationally has not been used. Uh, there continue to be uh, uh, clashes over the structure of local government. Uh, there was a, uh, um, basically an embargo on uh, fuel and other uh, goods coming across the border from India to Nepal, which caused considerable hardship uh, during the winter because there were shortages of fuel, very long lines uh, for getting uh, uh, petrol and other and other products. So Nepal has had a lot of difficulty in the uh, the years since the earthquake occurred, and um, hopefully is now getting on its feet and will be able to uh, uh, inaugurate its uh, reconstruction in a serious way. Um, our next speaker is Oscar Natividad. Is this working? Yeah. <laughs> As, as Professor Arnold Howitt mentioned before, like I've been trained as an architect in, uh, in urban studies. <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not used to using a microphone, sorry. Yoko <laughs> being a TV reporter knew exactly was really how to good hold the microphone. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been always interested in like, how, how can we provide some support for the relief and recovery process. Uh, last year, we tried to do some mapathon for uh, the time that the earthquake happened here at the GSC, together with Shanika and Dave Hampton and all the students from the Risk and Resilience. But we realized that in order to be realistic, we needed to plan for the recovery. There wasn't much that we could do. 
for the relief period. So together with uh, Brett Moore, a uh, love fellow from the World Vision International Agency in, in Nepal, uh, a team of students, we, we went to Nepal and we were divided in three different topics. There was Omar who was doing mapping and visualization. There was Ashley together with Justin talking about issues. She'll, she'll present herself. And then there was a team of uh, shelter. There was uh, Geronimo, Elika, and myself. So once we, once we got there, we were presented with a pilot project together with uh, Build Change, an engineering NGO, and World Vision International trying to provide the community side of it. Um, we got there nine months after the earthquake, and uh, there was no, there was no reconstruction happening yet. The National Reconstruction Authority had been recently restarted, so we had arrived to the field already with some with some research. We had access to the framework of the pilot project, and we did our own research around uh, land topography, housing typologies, and construction materials, even before getting getting to the field. As architects, we understood the thermodynamic flows of the traditional typology, the inner and outer distribution of spaces according to cultural habits, and we could think of new typologies and mixed structures, more robust systems to face future earthquakes while at the same time embodying current traditional cultures and practices. We drafted new typologies in order to reduce costs, avoid the risk of building in height, and allow to reuse materials already available on the site. But due to my, like, building on my previous experiences, both in, in Haiti and in Chile, we realized that just providing physical infrastructure wasn't going to be enough. So we wanted to inquire and we wanted to question what was housing reconstruction and what were the implications of housing reconstruction. And therefore, we tried to put aside these traditional tools of designers, moving from visual representation and object production into this methodology of inquiry. And that's what I've been using uh, for my thesis afterwards. Our research tried to understand the scope of um, housing beyond this physical structure, gravitating uh, around three main realms, which are the ones that are projected in the screen right now. Like an institutional lens, including both political and economic structures, a physical lens, otherwise understood as the built environment or the hard infrastructure, and a social lens, including soft infrastructures such as networks, habits, identity, social capital, and local governance. Instead of treating each lens as a separate item, I decided to push our inquiry uh, in order to see the intersections of these lenses. I've been developing the projected diagram to strengthen the um, theoretic claims and using for my thesis, but I won't go too deep into the detail because of time constraints. Like I think I'm already extending too much. <laughs> so the most relevant claim of this research is that if we move from understanding housing as a mere object and we take it as a subject, we'll soon realize that housing design is a key element for the recovery processes. A key element to shift reconstruction of isolated physical artifacts towards a more holistic reconstruction of settlements and the sense of community linked to them. Designing a city, a landscape, or a house can never be limited to one of those lenses. It always needs to understand the implications and intersections across the physical, institutional, and social lenses. Improving physical reconstruction efforts by creating stronger links between individuals, families, communities, villages, local governments, and NGOs is crucial to reduce community vulnerability to disasters, particularly when there are limited resources available. The last step of our research was to visit a community in Sangachok. Both Ashley and Joko joined us in that trip in the district of Sindupalchok. 
to better understand the social and institutional implications of housing on a specific context, hoping to fill in the gaps across the above mentioned lenses. In order to do so, we interviewed public officials, school directors, students, and community members. The specific case of Sangachok show issues around unemployment, labor migration, weak governance, poor public service delivery, and the vulnerability to future natural disasters like landslides, earthquakes, drought. All these areas pose an opportunity around which local social capital can be mobilized to strengthen disaster preparedness. A strong social capital can be in fact a substitute for a temporary lack of governmental interventions in disaster planning, early warning and recovery, like it was happening in the school systems that Yoga also was researching. Additionally, creating these self-resilient systems will require less NGO investment, less bringing from outside all the resources and trying to enhance what's already in the community. Women, youth, short trees and migrations were identified as potential topics to tackle. For instance, increase, increasing bonding and bridging capital will create opportunities to reverse migration trends by creating satellite cities of economic activity. This means if you're rebuilding housing, you need to rebuild also centers for employment so that the people can live around the area, like basic topic for urban studies. <laughs> Through narrative analysis and stories told by community women, the main water pump at the other side of the hill was identified as a focal point for social interaction among women. Repairing such an installation will reactivate a gathering space that enhances social capital and close connections and support across neighborhood communities. Other social convergent areas were identified, such as I mentioned the Chotara tree, which was the area for decision making, community temples, or other playing grounds. Then we can even see in, in some drawings that we did in some workshops with the kids, we were, we were asking them, what are the most representative areas of your community? And some of them draw a map where they were representing the Chotara tree, they were representing the open ground fields where they were playing, the temples, the schools, like all these buildings that were beyond just housing, that were the connecting elements in the community. The recovery of social and institutional tissues have been traditionally left outside of this housing or slash settlement reconstruction process. It is harder to manage and quantify. Metrics can only be obtained in the longer term. Hence, it becomes harder to prove that to donors and governmental structures the immediate result of such actions. However, if we circle back to the initial theoretic approach, where housing was a starting point for both physical and social infrastructures together with the institutional lenses, resulting re uh, from shorter to longer term impacts, will soon identify the need for this longer term thinking. It is difficult to tackle such a complex system being an outsider. As an outsider, we have access to archival history, analytical and usually detached from the reality. It becomes hard for us to access the living memory of the people in which this social tissue is sustained. That memory, alive, evolving, and belonging to the present is easily accessible by local members, though. Therefore, an initial step to tackle such complex systems, as I'm arguing in my thesis and trying to take a step farther, will be to create a multidisciplinary team of local and foreign partners, bringing together all these different pieces of uh, such an intrinsicate puzzle. So something that maybe later on I will suggest to Joko is that we should work together as a team coming from the outside in the early stages of the earthquake, trying to plan ahead how the recovery is going to look like with the government and the local institutions. 
Thank you very much, Oscar. Ashley. Thank you. My name is Ashley. Um, as was introduced, I am a Master's in Design Studies candidate at the Graduate School of Design. And our program is titled Risk and Resilience, which is something that I want to start with. Because I think it's um, a little unusual and often undiscussed why the built environment is so, is so critical in a disaster context or in a conflict context. Um, but it's telling that there are two architects on this panel, both Oscar and myself, as well as people we've heard of scales from um, political institutions, military, Oscar was talking about households. So how these scales connect across is very spatial and manifested in the built environment, frequently in urban centers, but also with infrastructure. So in Nepal in the earthquakes, 8.1 million people were affected, nearly a million homes were damaged or destroyed, people were sleeping outside in the streets. These are things that we understand at a body scale and that impacts us. The first things that you hear about are not kind of the institutional systems that are failing, the political machinations behind the scenes. It's what affects you and your home and your family. Um, so understanding that as the entry point to risk and resilience and building, risk, re building resilience in communities at a local scale is how we approach, um, from a risk and resilience perspective, the role of the designer in this area. Context is also incredibly important. You already heard a, a brief allusion to the fuel crisis that was occurring. Um, and nothing lives in a vacuum. Everything has these collateral impacts. So that fuel crisis, which started in September of 2015 and continued, and not only uh, affected us as we were there on the ground as researchers, but had far like flung effects in the disaster process as well. Um, impacting how oil and fuel products were coming from India, that there were no alternate energy sources, significantly affecting how people were living day to day, altering their practices in terms of when they were cooking, how they were cooking. An over-reliance on the electric grid was one of the results, which was crashing the system because there wasn't a capacity in country in the winter months. Um, it's all run of river hydropower. So all these systems are connected and much of them are infrastructural, which in Nepal specifically is a major challenge because of the Himalayas, the mountainous terrain makes these communities incredibly remote and also disconnected. So kind of, there's lots of big topics here, but one of them is for sure energy independence and, and what a country needs in order to kind of be autonomous. Um, Nepal is a landlocked country. Those are very serious challenges. They previously had that relationship with India. The fuel crisis required them to consider looking to China for some energy. Um, but it's something that's not going to go away, regardless of the fact that the crisis has since abated some, that there is a greater flow um, of these resources in and out of the country. The situation hasn't changed. So I was there with a colleague, Justin Hensroth, and we were invited to work with World Vision International, specifically the earthquake response, in setting up what they're calling an innovation lab. And we approached that term incredibly um, skeptically, as I think there are lots of terms that you rotate through, particularly from an architectural standpoint, sustainability being the first, innovation following and kind of has lit a fire across all these different fields, hybridity, if you haven't heard it yet, is soon coming. And interdisciplinary is also one of them, kind of what it means to be an interdisciplinary team. And so we approached this process trying to set up and help in building this framework for what an innovation lab could be in a response context, and also how it would be effective. And how you make something more than a buzzword. Our specific interests um, bridged pr primarily our backgrounds um, and, our, and our expertise. 
from a built environment perspective, but also from a policy perspective. My partner has worked in mediation and climate change resilience building in Southeast Asia. I'm interested in gender. And so we took a very specific dive into innovation, looking at social and gender inclusion and local partnership engagement. And that's kind of the conclusion. But I think it's also very important to talk about method. Um, I've heard methods already kind of being discussed, but they haven't been explicated as methods. And as designers, we frequently think about how we're working and why. So because of the energy crisis and its very severe impacts um, at a very body scale, we chose to use the energy crisis as our point of entry. And so not only doing stakeholder interviews, um, constituent interviews with people, with businesses, with institutions, but we also decided to use it as an opportunity of self-discovery. And so we went out into the Kathmandu area and self-sourced fuel to try and understand how all these systems work, how to navigate them, recognizing that we are outsiders, but also understanding that we needed independent kind of like verification and validation of what the situation is on the ground. So in meeting and trying to understand what the energy situation was and how that was impacting people in their homes and their daily lives, that led us to all these key agencies and organizations that were able to influence kind of the scales as you then start to move up from household to community to national. And that gave us the framework to propose to the Innovation Lab kind of what we saw as the iterative process of how an innovation framework could work. And also the criticality of grounding it in the local environment. You can't have an outward facing lab that has Google and Microsoft and all of these incredible resources coming if there's not a community there that one wants what they're doing, could understand what they're doing, and also is able to engage, sustain, and kind of maintain it as they move forward. Um, a big problem specifically with energy is that many of these systems, including a lot of the microgrids, there's no operations and maintenance that's built into the plan, so things are donated. You know, every school in Nepal may have a solar cell on its roof, but when the solar cell stops working, it just becomes ornament. Um, no one knows how to fix it. The parts aren't available, but also the people don't feel invested. It's not something that they worked for. Uh, it was a gift, and so it becomes trash when it's broken. Um, and so kind of understanding the processes of that is what we specifically were interested in getting inside of. The takeaway was that, and it's, it seems simple, but I think you hear it across every level, is that people need to come to the table as partners, not as beneficiaries, and not necessarily even as constituents. You work together um, in a very real way, not only inviting all of these groups and stakeholders to a table, but giving them agency and voice. And the goal is that they should not rely on whoever the external force is at the end of it. At the end of a successful engage engagement, whoever it is that is that started as the person that required help should be able to stand on their own. And essentially, you're constantly working yourself out of a job. And, and that is what I will close with. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we now turn to uh, Mohan Basmanandar for some comments, uh, both about the presentations and also uh, about uh, what he has experienced and is working on himself. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I first like to thank uh, Anne, who has been extremely helpful to organize this. David, uh, who put all the effort to make sure at this point of time, which is almost like a crisis for a student group, to have this uh, uh, organized on a day which uh, mark a year uh, of earthquake in Nepal. Uh, when we're looking at uh, relief and reconstruction, and thank you, all of you who has uh, contributed partly to make sure that how we help 
people build again better or quicker uh, or make it much more risk free and resilient. Uh, partly, uh, whatever is suggested is more focused on issues of uh, supplies, uh, especially in terms of how the code of building, the relationship between military and civil uh, agencies, and of course, the social and uh, infrastructural uh, uh, complexities needs to be looked at so that whatever they built would be useful. Um, clearly enough, I believe that uh, the state, even if it's weak, would be able to do some justice to uh, public infrastructures, like schools, like Yoko was trying to do. And I assume and I hope that it will be the first one to do, and that's important. Secondly, I also assume that uh, the government who, after nine months, that they have create, uh, created a national uh, reconstruction authority, is now in the process of planning to make sure all these considerations are taken in terms of institution, in terms of physical environment, as, and also the complexities of communities that is there with the uh, uh, geographical uh, sort of a remoteness as well as uh, the disconnect between uh, uh, communities. So, uh, and as uh, Anna has already suggested or mentioned, that we had a difficult time during conflict, and then we had a very fragmented political structure after, after the king uh, monarchy was gone, uh, to uh, constitution election, and then finally, at the time of constitution to be happened, we had an earthquake. So there is a distinctively uh, fracture in, of the social fabric of society in Nepal because it shifted from being uh, a very much isolated to controlled by a monarch to a republic headed by Maoist uh, insurgents. So it's a distinctively uh, fast-moving sort of a change that we saw in the society, which is difficult to cope with because uh, the values and norms were changing the structure was changing. At that point of time, you have an earthquake, and you know, it, it also affects not only the population, but also affects the government uh, institution, including destroying of mostly government uh, uh, sort of offices in capital, has a big impact on how government respond to the needs of the people. I think it's useful uh, looking at how, how best uh, we should look at but what I would want to just remark on is one aspect. Who should get the uh, fund? Because if you do not get the fund, then uh, there's no point actually designing uh, infrastructure for shelters. I'm looking at shelters now. Not, I understand that public institution, public infrastructure will happen. But uh, the 500,000 households uh, which has been collapsed, how do government would provide uh, support in addition to make sure that this happens? Once they did provide, then the issue of uh, social complexities, system complexities needs to be addressed so that it is resilient. So my basic remark today is to look at, will the people get money that the government promised to them? If they get the money, then it's understood. We use it and make the shelter and make the schools so that we can go in. In that context, I'm only focusing on two aspects of it. One how the state uh, is trying to give, and in that context, who would be the most deprived of getting that fund. 
If you look at uh, the overall aspect of uh, uh, the country itself, it's, uh, it's uh, initially it's the social arrangements are more uh, stratified through religious terms. So therefore, uh, there are uh, sort of a classes of people and caste system in it. There are ethnic groups, indigenous groups, and there are minorities. Uh, Nepal does not have a majority group. Uh, the, the total number, if you count in, only 17%, the highest majorities of are uh, the warrior class, and 14% are those who are a knowledge caste, so, so to speak. So if you look at it, then the elitist constitute only around 30%, which controls most of the uh, state structures and uh, decision-making as well as resources. So apart from it, it's all the ethnic groups and other castes are like 6%, 5%, 3%, 2%. And of course, the majority of people is Hindu, 80%. And then you have 4% Muslims and 3% Christians so, and other religions. So you'll see the, the country of minorities having um, the difficulties of geography is remote, not connected to each other. So there is already a difficulty in terms of how you manage that complexities. Disaster do not discriminate people. That's what I believe. But in terms of earthquake, it looks not only people discriminate, but disaster did discriminate people. Because the earthquake did not kill many. It's the shelters that killed people. And shelters are very much linked to their wealth. And if you see it, it discriminates those who are most vulnerable, poor, or marginalized, very clearly. If you look at the uh, figure, the total number of households that has been damaged, 41% of them are linked to either Dalits, which is untouchable caste, and or one ethnic group, which is around that 14 districts that has had implications of earthquake. I understand clearly well that we felt the earthquake. Everyone did feel the earthquake. It has an impact on how do we view life you know, suddenly you, you face death. So understandably, psychologically or traumatized-wise, most people, almost all, has felt similar effect onto it, which is about 8 million of people, one-third of total uh, population of country. But if you look at uh, the real effect of death, their loss of roof, you'll see only those who are either excluded because of caste or ethnic group, or excluded because of gender. So if you look at it, as I said, 41% of household that is damaged are from Dalits and ethnic group. 26% households are those who have a woman as a head old, head, uh, uh, head of the family. And about 21% are those who are senior citizens. So you see there is a pattern which you can see there is really uh, affect to a vulnerable people. Now, the whole idea of uh, who should get uh, the benefit, who should get the relief fund or for building their houses. There is already a government which decided to give uh, $2,000, that is 200,000 rupees to a rural areas, people who have households. And most of the Dalits and uh, ethnic groups and women headed households are in the rural areas. Understandably, there are huge number of uh, households that has also has been damaged in the capital, in the urban area. So if you look at very closely, it's very interesting to see the whole universal approach to provide that 200,000 to everyone equally. 
what I'm now trying to look at is should government look it in a different way so that those who need is different or those who, who are marginalized probably need more than those who are not in that context. I will just take two uh, examples and that will be useful. I, um, if, if you look at across world even relief, uh, earthquake, uh, reconstruction, recovery, the gifts that uh, or the funds that government supports is always equal. It's a universal approach, right? You, you provide equal to and it's really politically correct to give that. What I am uh, sort of uh, looking at it is it probably this makes more vulnerable to people who are waiting for last two rainy seasons to get it. No? This rainy season is coming, so they do not have a roof. Last year, they already went through one rainy season, one winter season. Now they are still waiting. If they do not get the money within next two years, they will have to flee their homes. They would have consumed everything that they have. And I do not think if they go to urban areas, they will survive. I do not think they have competencies or skills or, or you know, the capacity of attitude to deal with the urban complexities, even more than the rural complexities that they are in. Two aspects of this equal uh, distribution. Um, this I have, I have taken from my mentor and a friend, Professor Deborah Stone, uh, who, uh, who wrote a seminal book on policy paradox, political decision-making process. If you look at principally, she gives a very interesting example, starts on that book. Uh, she says if the university provides a professor to cut a cake in a class, uh, invariably you would cut uh, equal pieces, right? So there is nine challenges that she has said it. in principle. I'll take only three principles. I also talk about the process uh, disadvantageness. The first uh, problem is that if you are equally uh, cutting the class and then your whole idea of unequal invitation happens. That is that uh, those who get the cake are those who are in the class, in his uh, class. It may be masters in one project, program or some of them may be excluded from that whole membership. So the idea that equal pieces actually discriminates to the membership is very, very powerful that membership is about citizenship in the state process. That is, if you look at the historicity, the excluded groups, especially in, in terms of Dalits and ethnic minorities, they do not feel that they are part of the state. So therefore, they never had any engagement with state. That also means that either they are citizenshipless, they are stateless, they are sort of voiceless, or they are sort of landless in that context. So, it seems very clearly that if you cut the cake piece, this piece is not going to, be to, to, to go to them because they are outside the membership link that the state describes. That's one. The second principle is about the whole idea of social groups. Uh, it is true that historically those who have been marginalized had less uh, capacity to manage and cope with the disaster or the external shocks that has happened. I think it's very clearly that if you cut the cake, I think they should have unequal slices for equal social groups, meaning that uh, the cake should be cut in such a way that the, their, such as the Dalit groups and ethnic groups should get much more bigger slices, but equal slices to them, whereas 
the smaller slices to elitist group. That's the second principle that I think needs to be agreed, uh, agreed on. The third principle is much more even clearer to the, uh, the, the effect of a disaster. That is about need. I think those who are here have access to food in, in that context of example. And just took, taken food uh, one hour ago, if she gives the slice of cake, I probably would not want to take it, even if it's equal. But some of you behind David may have been, may not have an access to food for last two days and has been hungry. Probably he needs more piece of cake than I do. So that basically means that we are cutting a cake on unequal uh, pieces for making sure that it's provided to equal needs to them. And if that is true, then the government has to, even given that they are weak still, has to go ahead and address an assessment methodology by which they should look at much more to the vulnerable people of uh, needs. I understand at the point of relief, everybody needed water, everybody needed uh, medicine. But as we move on to recovery and reconstruction, their needs are very, very different. It's very clear. Because the earthquake did has happened, they did not discriminate, but they did discriminate in terms of shelter. And I think it's necessarily true that we look at that from that perspective. So one aspect of this principle needs to be discussed. And I'm actually uh, having an argument with uh, the uh, uh, National Reconstruction Authority in terms of how do you uh, accept that. And I suppose uh, they, they had a gender and social exclusion unit, but what's the point? The last one is about uh, the whole process system. The process does disadvantage few and advantage others. For example, as I said, uh, people, because it's centralized, the fund that comes into center as 4.1 billion US dollars, when they're distributing, the system says that you need to have a certificate. And this illiterate poor, do they have a certificate? I don't think so. Neither, neither do they have a uh, citizenship certificate, nor they do they have a land ownership certificate. Will they get the money? Well, question mark. The second is they also put a clause. Because it's a donor money, they wanted to make sure that it is not used or misused. They said, OK, it has to be go through a bank account. What? Bank account? Who has the bank account? They do not even know how to read. Will they be able to go inside the bank even? That's where the exclusionary process happens. I would assume that if we do not address such, uh, within next two years, you will see the humanitarian crisis of these groups uh, that may have uh, a very huge casualties in their families. And that's what we would like to look at, how we discuss with the government. Thank you, thank you very much. And thank you to all the panelists for excellent presentations. And now uh, we'd like to open up for uh, Q&A from the audience. Okay. Should I respond to my question? I think you are right. The exclusionary uh, political structure is still uh, perpetuates. And it's also because that, partly because also true that uh, our societies are, had uh, tribal sort of uh, features. So therefore, it's very clearly that uh, the kinship works, how they distribute the benefits. The constitution, even the constitution uh, prolongated in 1961, after King took over, actually is uh, very uh, equal to all the citizens, irrespective of their caste, 
creates religion extra and constitution now also has that but uh, we i do not think we your frustration would be solved within next 10 years because the yeah i i don't think so because the constitution does have that underlying implications of exclusionary politics political structure continued with it uh, next yeah next near revolution has to happen before it collapses the political it, there is a change that is happening definitely there has been shifts from being a very family oriented monarch towards uh, elected population so that shift does creates a sense of accountability uh, sort of deficit along communities and people and they will come back i mean within it just takes two or three years for everyone who has suffered now either through a blockade or through a um, sort of earthquake they will come back to state and demand and that demand process has been actually uh, articulated in moist movement quite well so i think they will come in terms of accountability and slowly uh, whether they like it or not they are sort of a, a power um, position and political structure is going to sort of starts to modify not necessarily completely change but yeah modification may happen thank you other questions or comments <laughs> you should let me say something yeah, yeah, then you I can correct you me <laughs> I, I think it's um, useful my experience in nepal is extremely thin i spent a week there last summer um, but mohan arranged for us uh, uh, extensive interviews and one of the things I think that I and the colleagues that went with me on that trip felt was that Nepal had a very vigorous civic life at the local level and that there were many self-help groups etc in part because the government doesn't have a tradition of helping people delivering services so that um, organization of people at the village level is essential there's no support beyond the family for those kinds of activities. And I think that <coughs> what I was struck by is that it's crucial for Nepal to reconstitute its local governments, to allow for elections, and to build relationships initially at that local level uh, that would allow organizations both to deliver to the citizens in those villages um, where there does seem to be that civic capacity, but also to build skills and organizations that can start aligning themselves with neighboring areas and perhaps build up into movements that can affect what the national government is, is doing. And um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Uh, it's very hard to see that, but I think that as, um, and I don't think anybody's ever going to agree perfectly on a structure for the, <coughs> for the provinces, but eventually, there will be a decision, there will be boundaries, and political life will start to spring up around those boundaries. There will be an integration of districts into that system in some fashion, and there will be recreation of village governments. So I think what you're looking for depends on that revival. Well, very clearly that uh, the whole issue of rather, the participation happens if representation is good. Uh, understandably, uh, the representation mode has been inclusive more, and it is going to grow more. <coughs> that's one. It's not going to go back. That's very clear. Um, sort of uh, uh, stopping or block any any blockades uh, done by 
citizens to express their grievance is a uh, uh, symptoms of not having a structure in place for their grievance to be heard by the state. Uh, it's very clear. It's a representation issue. But this representation issue has two parts. One was it's very centralized. Therefore, decentralization was useful. And local government act has done that. And we've seen uh, in from 1992 to 2001, there has been quite huge uh, engagement with the citizens and local government. It's very clear. It was useful, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. But it's going to happen again. The same one part of uh, centralized and decentralized aspect. The second part is very clearly about unitary system, which is going to be federal now. So that's where the uh, the, the debate is happening, how the political power is, is you know, uh, federalized. And I think uh, whether we like it or not, whether the boundaries are correct or not, it's going to be federal after the constitution happens. So this will change, as that's there for 10 years, this will change aspect of people to organize themselves in terms of, you know, so creating or mobilizing their grievances or demands in making sure that the state heard. And this state, if it's not central, it's decentralized. If it's not unitary, if it's federal, has tremendous uh, sort of a space for citizens to put their voices. We have time for one short question and short answer. <laughs> Please. Very simple answer, no. This tenure is my projection. It's not the state's or the any political leader's projection. So the state do not have that plan. No. Can I say something? <laughs> because maybe maybe the governmental structures are really well established right now and needs to happen like a huge change to actually tackle that down. But right now there are a lot of resources coming from the outside. So maybe maybe it's the role of the international agents and the international NGOs to start a participation process or different kinds of processes that give hope to the people and that can be used as an example for later governmental structures. Yeah. So may maybe that should be the way, like try to bring in some role from the outside as an example and then see if the government wants to adopt that. Change is likely to be slow, but there are source there are forces that are acting on society that may bring change. I think what um, Oscar talks about uh, will be very spotty. There will be experimental projects here, there, and there. And if they start to bear fruit, then they may get replicated. Um, the fact that there is an electoral politics and that there's very vigorous political competition uh, means that parties will eventually start to think about competing on the basis of delivering something to the population rather than simply arguing with each other. Um, I do firmly believe that uh, putting in place a federal system is crucial to that uh, because the linkage between what people do in Kathmandu and what happens in a village, especially the villages that are far west or far east uh, or in the southern region where the minorities are, um, is very, very far removed from what's happening in Kathmandu. Um, but uh, the fact that there does seem to be a commitment uh, for the most part to peaceful resolution of, um, of problems in, in Nepal, at least with people remembering how bad the civil war was, which was very recent, um, there is, I think, at least the potential for hope if hope doesn't yet exist. 
I want to thank everybody for coming, and I'm sorry we couldn't end on a more optimistic uh, <laughs> uh, note. Um, <laughs> things, you know, this was a terrible disaster to Nepal. Uh, the recovery is going extremely slowly. It's enmeshed in the uh, uh, very difficult constitutional transition that's occurring. Um, but uh, this is a place that needs uh, both outside help, as Oscar and others were noting, uh, but it also needs to pull itself together and create a politics um, that works to the benefit of its people. Uh, but that's likely to be a slow process. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. And thank you very much to the panelists for excellent presentations. Thank you.